Women Making Waves. I don't know about you, but I find when the nights are drawing in and the days are very short, I loathe going out for my morning or evening walk, Susie. In fact, I would go so far as to say I've actually stopped completely. What do you mean you've stopped? You've stopped going out? Yeah, I've stopped going out. It's too cold. It's too wet. It's too damp and it's too dark. I'm a little bit gobsmacked, actually, that you don't want to go outside. Mm. No, I don't. Want, I just, I'd quite happily. I don't know what to say, except you, you, well, you need to get you outside, know, Linda. You know. It can be a week goes past. If I don't have to go up to the office, I go shopping on a Friday night. <laughs> and then I go shopping on a Friday night. <laughs> that is hilarious that you go on a Friday night. When you go shopping, does that mean, say, you do online shopping? No, don't be daft. Oh. I, go to, I do it the old-fashioned way. Oh. I, I pick up the bag of sugar. I feel that it is the correct weight <laughs> and not leaking. I look at it. I check sell-by dates. I investigate what I'm buying, put it in my trolley, and then I pay for it. I don't even scan as I go. None of that new stuff. I go to the checkout. I make sure I get a person behind the checkout. <laughs> who, you know, really usually annoys me because I can't keep up with them and pack my bags in time. But anyway, (laughs) and then I pay for it. Anyway, the point is, the point that was making is I am becoming quite unfit because I'm I'm just staying in the house the whole time. Right, but even if you're becoming unfit, which I have to say, we need to talk about this in a minute, but I'd like to know if you are staying in, are you Mm -hmm. reading anything? Or oh, listening I read to all, anything. I read all day, yes. Yes, yes okay. Yes. So, the, so books are sort of. I read books. Hmm, so yeah, when I go to with bed at night. Good. Oh, yeah, okay. Yeah, yeah, so, yeah. so well, you... that just makes it worse because you're still not moving. No, but I'm just slightly worried that you've cut yourself off from the world, but you haven't really because you are doing lots of things from home. Let's from be home. So, mm-hmm. that, that's mm-hmm. been something that we've all done because of COVID. Mm-hmm. We've stuck to a few more things doing from home. Just stuck to that whole lifestyle, <laughs> the whole COVID lifestyle. <laughs> <laughs> of not buying clothes or shoes and just, you know, doing with what I have. Okay, so we need to tackle this, Linda. Mm-hmm. This is this is a, a slightly worrying me as your friend mm-hmm. that you are at home most of the time. Yeah, yeah. My next door neighbour knocked on the door yesterday. Mm-hmm. And first of all, I thought, who the heck's that yeah. knocking on the door? And how dare that person knock on my door? I mean, well, I, I mean, don't really want to. I had to walk to the door, quite <laughs> honestly. So uh, anyway, I answered the door. I answered the door and it was my next door neighbour. And she said, I'm really, really sorry to ask, can I cut down your grapevine that's coming over into our side? And I went, oh yeah, of course. I've got, in fact, look, I'll come and do it because I felt really guilty and it is my grapevine that's, you know, it's <laughs> it's careering all over the place, quite frankly, out of control. And she said, no, 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 we'll, we'll cut it down. I just wanted permission. And then she said, and, and just in case, <laughs> she said as an afterthought, just in case you, you hear any screaming, <laughs> I'm due to have a baby in two weeks. I didn't even know she was pregnant. Oh, you have been cutting yourself from the big wild world. Yeah, I have. You, yeah, so so obviously, how did you feel after that? I bet you felt that you should be cutting the grapevine yourself. Well, you? I did. Oh, well done. I did, you. but she wouldn't have it. Oh, so okay. I had a <laughs> okay. I had an eight-month pregnant woman cutting down my <laughs> grapevine for me. Okay, so it wasn't it wasn't as bad as as I'm maybe making it sound. There'd be a few a few trailing <laughs> things going across the other side, but I would quite happily That's have gone out and done it. I did feel rather bad, yeah. Okay, all right, but that does strike me as if to say you need to put your foot out 
the door a bit more. Even than just into the garden uh, to cut the grapevine, perhaps. Yeah. Yeah. Well, that's yeah, right. Yeah. yeah. Now, now, and let's go back to the fitness mm-hmm. here, Linda. Are you, are you worrying that you're not doing as much, uh, as many steps? I'm not doing any steps. Do you have a step count? Do you have a... No. Well, I used to, but it, it broke. Oh. Probably from lack of use, but it broke. <laughs> So yeah, no, no, I don't, I don't have that. Okay, so we do need to get you sorted, don't we? Well, this is a perfect time then to talk about our two guests, isn't it? Because they really are trying to connect you with the outside world, uh, Linda. I they think are. That's what we're trying they to are. do. They'll have a struggle, but yes, they will be trying. <laughs> <laughs> so we have Cindy Ford, Cambridge-based author. Yeah, Cindy Ford. She's great. You know, she's the founder of Planetary, and it's very much based on environmental work. And she's just produced a book called Bright New World. And I tell you what, it is worth having a look on her website at Bright New World if you want to go to the Planetary website because it's a blaze of colour. It's just amazing. Absolutely beautiful. Yeah, we're very excited about talking to her. And the other two guests today, they're two friends and they have started an interesting little collaboration. It's a studio called Fresh. And it provides Ely with a space for fitness and mental health well-being as well. And we'll be finding all about that later on today as well. I wonder if they'd move it to my village. Yes, yes. Maybe that's a good idea because you could take your first steps out yeah, of the door. Yeah, maybe if they moved you? it next door, perhaps. Yeah, then you wouldn't have to walk very far, <laughs> but then your step count would go zero. But yes, I think that would be quite good if we could have something for you next door. You're listening to Women Making Waves radio show and podcast, brought to you by Susie Thorpe and Linda Ness. This show is all about women doing extraordinary things. We are joined today by environmentalist, speaker and author Cindy Ford, founder and CEO of Planetary and campaigner with She Changes Climate and lots more besides. Cindy works with leaders in education, communication and sustainability, including the University of Cambridge and the United Nations. Cindy has just published a children's book called Bright New World. Now, I know that's only the tip of the iceberg. And thank you very much for joining us today, Cindy. Oh, thank you so much, Susie and Linda. It's a real pleasure to be part of your wonderful podcast. Well, it's a pleasure to have you here. And I think this is going to be very, very interesting. At what point in your life did you realise that you wanted to get involved in helping to save the planet? Well, to be honest, uh, Linda, I didn't have too much choice. Uh, both my, my parents were um, you know, very keen on environment and civil rights. So they're very activist in their own right. So I just kind of grew up in that and it made perfect sense to me. And over the years, obviously, it's moved from the margins to the mainstream as an issue that's now seen as possibly the most critical issue of our time. So I'm glad my parents were right about something. <laughs> yeah, no, I know, because there was a lot of contention about it back then, actually, wasn't there? Not that long ago, in fact. I mean, I remember interviewing someone about, I don't know, five years ago, and, and it was a scientist. And I actually said to her, do you believe in climate change? And she said, oh, yes, absolutely. It's, it's a definite thing. But even then, that recently, there was still this doubt in our minds. It's really changed now. Absolutely. I mean, it's great how many people are aware now and really want to do something. It's a, you know, it's a terrible shame that it's taken this long. But I think we need to focus on what 
is positive and that is that so many people care now and really want to do something. Because mm, I remember years ago, but I remember as a child looking on the TV at the Greenpeace activities and and it was a, a world we couldn't even associate ourselves. It was something that somebody else was doing. But now I think people are far more respective of this situation, aren't they? So the, the media build it up into, they sensationalise it, but I think there's a whole lot more respect now for people that are really trying to make us all aware of climate change. Yeah, I think absolutely. And I think, you know, you're absolutely right. It is a shame how the media portrayed activists and activism and the activities that were taking place. But I do think that um, this is so much embedded now in the heart. I mean, we've had the whole rise of corporate social responsibility, the rise of the socially responsible investment movements, the ESG movements. So it's just moved its way right into the mainstream of how we think, how we do things. So hopefully some of those barriers are breaking down. I think that was a real shame because it got politicised, where this and you know, you know the loony lefty greenies kind of thing and the, the sensible. But I think that's that's so divisive. And this is not a political issue. It's just an mm. issue about what we need to do now to build a, a world with a future. And I think most people are very much beginning to see it that way. Absolutely. You did a master's in business and sustainability. Why the business side of it? Did you see that as a way of making an impact? Yes, absolutely. That was in 1998, I think. And that was one of the first masters in sustainable development, particularly from the business point of view. And that was funded by um, the rather wonderful Anita Roddick, who founded the body shop. Yeah, yeah. So that was her whole ethic all the way through, hugely successful as a business person. And so her intervention, if you like, in making change was by funding a course at Bath University to bring forward this whole wave of business leaders who were equipped to deal with the challenges that we are now facing as a global society. So, you know, that was way back on the radar in 1998. It was a fantastic cohort of people that I studied with, engineers, people from the water industry, people from retail, people, you know, like buyers from New Look, me, I was in communications, just a, a fantastic range of people. And I think that's so important because if you embed it into how you learn to run your business, it is just business as usual. It doesn't make sense to have a business that harms the life support systems of our planet. So I think that was it was very foresighted of Anita to, to fund that. And you can you see that happening more in business courses now, that sustainability as a component. It is all about empowering people within what they're doing at the time and not thinking it's on the outside, but actually doing it as a way of life. And I think that's exactly what you're trying to do, aren't you? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, it isn't about giving things up. It sounds a strange thing to say, but in some ways, this is the most exciting time to be alive. We, we have pushed our backs against the wall, but there's such opportunity here for transformation and for innovation. And I think sometimes necessity does drive the greatest innovation. So there's that we, we do need to reinvent how we operate most of our large systems, our energy system, our food system, our economic system. But the outcome of doing that is a world that works much better really for everybody because we are a very young species. Perhaps evolution does happen through trial and error, but we either evolve to working in a much more symbiotic way with Earth, which means more abundance for all, or we edit ourselves out of the plan, to be honest. So I think we're a smart enough species to get with the programme and start adapting. And I think we can create a world that is much more harmonious, fair and probably more enjoyable to live in for most people than what we have now. I was really interested to see that you're on the steering committee 
of She Changes Climate. Can you tell us a bit about that group? Gladly, uh, Susie and Linda, thank you very much for asking. So Sea Changes Climate grew out of um, a, a really appalling prospect, actually. Britain hosted COP26 last year in Glasgow, and I think the September before, the delegate team was announced, and there wasn't a single woman on the team with decision, at decision-making level, not a single woman, you know, in, in a country that, that's supposed to be Western and franchised. So, you know, I'm part of a network of women called Women in the Environment, and it's mostly pretty influential women who work on environmental issues. And when we saw that report and just thought, there's just no way this can stand. This has to be challenged. And two fabulous women, Antoinette Vermillier and Bianca Pitt, really took up the baton and they formed She Changes Climate. This is a very well-connected uh, network. So they pulled in some of the global female figures in climate change, like Christina Figueres, Mary Robinson, and people from the arts world, like Emma Thompson, Lily Cole, and just launched a global petition to the British government. I think it was 400 women leaders to say, you know, this is absolutely mad. There must be diversity and decision-making Otherwise, as with all monocultures, you get collapsed. And that's what we're seeing now. We, we have a, you know, effectively a patriarchy, which is decisions made to protect the, the interests of a, you know, as a, as a single interest group. I think there's lots of goodwill to do good things, but essentially it's to maintain the decisions have been made up to very recently to maintain the status quo. And unless you include voices from other perspectives, that's all you're going to get. And we cannot maintain this status quo because it's the very thing that's fueling most of the problems. So that's how She Changes Climate came about. You know, we met with Alok Sharma as it, what he was at the time. He was the head of COP, you know, and senior people in that. But they, it was incredibly hard to move them. They really did not see that that was an issue. And so actually that just caused the movement to grow. It's gone from being a British movement to now being a global movement. And we're taking the same campaign out to COP27. And it's really now a global campaign that any planetary decisions must be made with at least a 50-50 representation of women's voices, including from the global south. I know. I was looking at the stats on the She Changes website and only 34% of COP26 committees and 30, this is all of the committees, and 39% of those leading delegations were women. And at the 2021 G7 summit, there was only one woman amongst the decision makers. One woman. And women are often at the forefront of these changes. You know, we were talking about organisations earlier on, and it's often women, when you see demonstrations, it's often women that are at the forefront because they're the ones that are passionate about this kind of thing and sustaining life, really. Absolutely. I mean, I'm, you know, there, there's a lot of men that hold that worldview too, but we're now shifting from this relentless competition extract to extinction paradigm which may have served a few people very well you know post throughout colonization the industrial revolution those are the models that have been the dominant models and they have generated huge amounts of wealth some of it has trickled down but we actually live in a world now when half of the world's wealth is owned by seven men that is the absolute <laughs> truth yeah. but it's seven human beings is grotesque anyway but it is you know it's seven men so that model just isn't working and if you look at how natural ecosystems work that are robust and that survive and have longevity they are ecosystems that are based on collaboration and symbiosis so so people might may call that you know a feminine worldview but it doesn't mean that men there's plenty of men that actually also um think like that and that does need to be where we have to shift. 
to make the adaptations that will mean that we survive. You know, in any ecosystem, again, if there's a predator that becomes too powerful, nature will take the predator out. Mm. And that's kind of what we're seeing with this model is it's just imploding. And women are actually the most affected by climate change. Often it's um, the poorer communities that are most affected and and women who are more Mm. affected by climate change, by nature of the work uh, that they do and the positions they hold in society. They're most vulnerable. It's still hard to try to find the men to support the issues that women are in a minority at the moment when it comes to big decisions. Yeah, it depends what constituency you're in, because there are just so many fantastic men in this movement for systemic change, which is what we're talking about here. And they have no issue at all with understanding how important that is, how power balances work, how the historic systemic structure has so much advantaged men over women. And they're very conscious of that and and will support hugely by voice and by action but you then you'd hit a whole other area of society where these like I have to say COP27 much more um, conventional institutions they just will not shift on it they're very much indoctrinated still about what women are capable of and Mm. also there is this massive protection of the status quo, which is in their vestest interest. They are representatives of the interest group who still benefit most from this system. So they're not feeling the impacts as much and really they're paid to hold that system in place. And that means excluding women who speak you know, with a voice of, you know, of natural systems of, of adaptation and change. The only women that tend to get through are women who will champion that status quo. And then they're held up. Oh, we do have women, but they're women who are, who are almost mouthpieces for that yes. system rather than who challenge it. Yeah. Yeah. You've had lots of senior jobs and then you started Planetary. Tell us about that. Well, you know, as I said, I've been, um, you know, I've been an environmental campaigner activist you know, since my own childhood really you know, an activist in my teens and then I guess most of my career has been spent on working out where you, we can make effective change at which points on the system you can make it you know, from being an angry teenager outside the gates to being to working on socially responsible investment inside the boardroom or sustainability in corporates I, you know in my, with my, my communications hat on but all the way through for me has been this theme instead of spending these sometimes the budgets are very large to fix to stick plasters over disasters what if we actually raised a generation of human beings who thought differently so these problems are stopped at source and you know, Einstein famously says you cannot solve the problems with the same thinking that created them you know you have to design new models and new ways of thinking so children are born eco-literate we're products of our education system of the system that we're funneled into so we're very much funneled into the system now which trains us to be consumers and we cannot carry on with that we, we, we live on a a planet with finite resources we have to change the model so to change it at source so that the absurdities that we now do are exposed for what they are really in the book that I've just written that's that's the starting point children look back from the future and they're going like really did we really used to do that when we knew (laughs) what the effects are so it feels like the most powerful intervention that I felt equipped to make was in challenging the education system, really, and what we actually enable our young people, the relationship they have with planet Earth, and to equip them to be the innovators and entrepreneurs of, you know, of a world with a future. So I've tried to Trojan horse it into a lot of the other 
jobs that I've had to be perfectly honest but then I got to the stage where I just thought you know time's up I'm, I'm very passionate about this I also I'm a creative I tell stories my background is as a storyteller in the big bad world of advertising some of the time but um but and, yeah and a real passion for children's media children's education and I just kind of putting the two together just felt like the right thing to do at this time especially seeing as we have so little time to solve these problems in any way that's going to have an impact so I just thought no more tinkering around the edges really let's just go go for it. And the book that you mentioned Bright New World looks amazing it looks colourful it's packed with stuff is gorgeous and it's set in the future I believe tell us a little bit about it well yeah that's right it looks at where we need to make systemic change energy food transport how we educate women our carbon sinks our you know our oceans our rainforests but it's set in the future to tell children look it's absolutely possible to get out of this all the solutions or the major mitigation to our global you know climate and ecological breakdown exist the major barriers to them are in the way that we think social and political barriers so that set in the future to give children this real sense of optimism and hope look this is the world that we can have it's absolutely perfectly doable and feasible because look we're here and the children look back and they as I said they say no now the you know, they, they speak from the future it's not perfect but the oceans have regenerated the, the, the rainforests have regenerated we live in livable sustainable cities so that each section opens with this beautiful vision of very realistically where we could be if we change course now and accelerate all the all the positives and then it looks at well this is where we are now in real time these this is what's causing the problems and then it says and this is what we need to do to build this roadmap to this mm. brighter world so each section is presented in that way mm. and so to, to really highlight to not ignore the problems that wouldn't help anybody but to really highlight that the solutions are there sitting in front of us you know right on the table and all we need to do is move there's a, a piece here that i'm just reading actually it says a joyous abundance of a book with hope dripping off the page i'd like every person to have it and every older person to have the recipe for this cocktail of delight at their fingertips and that was sir tim smith author and co-founder of the eden project i mean that's that's fantastic i just want to know a very important part here as i'd like every young person to have it so is this a mission that it's great you've done the book it's getting that message out. And for me, that is equally as important as the book. Absolutely right, Susie. And that's something that, you know, we're building into the model of planetary because it can't just be for children that can afford it. With the book, I'm afraid I've got certain limitations because that I've collaborated with, a, you know, the fantastic publishing company, Welbeck, who are totally behind the mission. But So what we're hoping to do is get some kind of sponsorship so that we can take the book into schools in underserved communities, mm-hmm. um, you know, looking at recreate as we've done with some of the other planetary um, resources, create things digitally so they can be downloaded you know anywhere in the world you know, it still does mean that you, re- you need some kind of tech infrastructure but it's a lot cheaper than getting a whole book though we would like to get books into these communities but we support them with resources so that families or teachers can actually use those to augment the learning or to work digitally and use it with print that can be downloaded yeah. I've, I've created materials like that for example an ocean adventure which is looking at how to look after our oceans so yeah to apply the model to bright new world as well because yeah absolutely vital that the message gets out and it is a really positive one 
And I think that some of the time we feel so debilitated because the, the situation we're in is so overwhelming. Mm. You think, I can't do anything about this. But when you break it into small pieces and you can see what can be done, then you start to, people think, yeah, well, actually I can, you know, we can move this way and it can happen. And I think that's a hugely important message for children and their families and teachers and the world at large. I wondered who the book is aimed directly. Is it directly at children or is it, more towards teachers who can steer them through the, the learnings in the book. Well, a little bit of both, really, um, Linda. I mean, I would love a child just to be able to pick it up and curl up on the sofa and read it. You know, like, as you say, the illustrations are designed to be really inviting. There's tons of detail on the page so you can find all sorts of lovely things going on. You don't need to read it from start to finish. You can dip in, you can dip out. So I want it to be a really, a really fabulous adventure for children that they return to again and again. And also it definitely designed to work in the classrooms because part of the difficulty with this is sustainability is not on the curriculum. There's no place for it on the curriculum, which I find really totally insane. Yeah. There's bits that fit, you know, that are slotted in here and there, but there's no overall plan to put sustainability systemically across all subjects. With Bright New World and the other resources that we've made at Planetary, it can be in maths, it can be in geography, it can be in literacy, it can be in science. There's, you know, there's as I say, the activities we've created are designed to be multidisciplinary and transdisciplinary. So it's really easy for teachers to find ways to bring these subjects into the classroom. And teachers do a phenomenal job, they really do, but they feel underprepared to teach these subjects and under-resourced and they don't have a mandate for it. That it's is insane. incredible, because that was something I was going, I was going to ask you if you thought there's enough focus on climate change in schools. I think you've just answered that. There clearly isn't. So unless a teacher was really into that themselves, I guess... That's it. It's, it's not going to happen. Yeah. It has to be. You've got the eco teachers who are really passionate about it themselves. They find ways of putting it into the curriculum. But as you get into later years in school, out of primary school, because things are teach to test and um, are all designed around passing the prescribed exams, so much of that stuff has to come out if the teachers have managed to get it in in the first place, which I think is actually morally abhorrent that the mm. children are going to leave the schools in a world with the window of opportunity we have now to make change. The preparation just isn't there at the school. The, the children know it and they're furious, as you've seen with the climate strikes, the youth strikes for climate, yeah. the, the movement, teach the truth, teach the future. They are really pushing for this, but the governments, you know, they, they're such huge institutions and they can't change. The, um, the Recently, the Conservative government announced a world-leading uh, climate change strategy, which appeared to be giving the option of one G an extra GCSE in um, life sciences, in natural history. So that is just not being taken seriously enough at that level, which is the absolutely critical level. Mm. That is part of the objective of Planetary. And there's other really superb um, organisations who are working on moving transformative education into the mainstream. But it's incredibly hard because the schools want to say, well, we have to get the children to pass these exams. And unless the exams change, yep. then mm -hmm. we can't change our content. Mm. And even yeah. if the parents want something different, which they do, they're stuck with in this system unless the children come out with, you know, with the best possible grades they can in these current examined subjects, then they, they can't progress in a way that's recognised. So there is a really deep systemic work that needs to happen in our education systems to equip young humans to be able to understand this stuff in a way that 
is profound enough for them to actually start to be the in- innovators who can create the change that we need and, and support that. Yeah. This has been a brilliant conversation, actually, yeah. Cindy. Cindy Ford, really enjoyed it. And I'm wishing you all the best luck with Bright New World. I hope it goes into all of the schools very, very quickly. Thank you very much for joining us today. Yeah, thank Thanks. you so much, Susie and Linda, for all the fantastic work you do and for giving me the opportunity oh. to be part of it. That's all we have time for today on Women Making Waves. Now, we must thank our guests today, Cindy Ford and Alice Loom and Sarah Ford. We're always on the lookout to feature women living extraordinary lives, so please do contact us if you know of someone we should be talking to. You can contact us via social media on Twitter and Facebook at WomenMW or on Instagram at Women Making Waves. You can also find us on cambridge105.co.uk or visit our website, womenmakingwaves.co.uk, where you can hear all of our interviews. Bye for now. Bye-bye.